Thank you for listening to this production from New Life Presbyterian Church. If you'd like to find out more, visit newlifepca.org. The Gospel of Luke. We've been in Mark, but today we'll be in Luke, Luke chapter 1. If you don't have a Bible, there's a paperback Bible underneath one of the chairs in front of you. Uh, Sorry, I didn't check the page number. Uh, If you're not sure where to go, just ask somebody next to you. That's okay. But I encourage you to have a Bible open in front of you, Luke chapter 1. We'll be looking at verses 26 to 38 today. So we are... um, in a sermon series here this morning on the Incarnation. We began this last week. Uh, It is the Advent Christmas season, and the reason for the season is the Incarnation. And so we're taking a few Sundays here just to explore this from God's Word to see what the Scriptures teach us about this uh, essential foundational Christian doctrine, the Incarnation. And last week we began by considering the uh, pre-existence of Christ. We spent some time uh, examining the scriptural teaching that our Savior existed before He was born. So that might sound kind of strange, but that's what we believe the Scripture teaches. If you weren't here last week, you can go to our website, you can hear that sermon uh, to get caught up, but that's a very appropriate starting point for this study of the Incarnation. That was based on Colossians 1. You might remember chapter 1, verse 17. It says that the Son of God was before all things, preexistent, the eternal preexistent Son. That's the logical starting point for any study of the incarnation, a preexistent eternal Son who has existed before creation. But now the question comes to mind, if He existed before creation, how did He enter into creation? And the answer to that question is through the virgin birth. And that's what we're going to be talking about here this morning, the virgin birth. So what I mean by that, the virgin birth, is that we believe that the Scriptures teach us that there was a young woman, a Jewish woman named Mary, lived about 2,000 years ago. She gave birth to a son. That son's name is Jesus. And that whole process happened without the involvement of a human father that a young woman became pregnant, gave birth, but no man was involved. No sexual activity took place, and yet a real human being was born. It's, it's a miracle. It's a miraculous thing that the Scriptures teach us, the virgin birth. And when I say that it's a miracle, that's precisely where, for some people, it becomes a problem because we happen to be in a world, in a culture that is slow to believe in miracles. Many of us are driven by skepticism and cynicism and uh, a slowness to embrace the supernatural. There's a guy named Rudolf Boltmann, uh, a very liberal uh, theologian. This is back in 1961, very famously wrote this, said, uh, it is impossible to use electric light and the wireless, it's a radio, and to avail ourselves of modern medical and surgical discoveries and at the same time to believe in the New Testament world of spirits and miracles. And so that kind of attitude has prevailed in a lot of biblical scholarship in modern times and has infected uh, the church in many places. We tend to be a people slow to believe in, in miracles. You know, when we hear about the gospel, we love this idea of sins being forgiven, going to heaven when we die. 
God loving us eternally and unconditionally, but now you introduce this other thing. Yeah, and there's also this virgin birth. And for some people, it's like, okay, that's it, I'm out. Uh, I cannot believe in virgin women giving birth for some. That's a deal breaker. Maybe that's the case for you, maybe not. But we're going to explore it this morning in the next few minutes and see what the Scripture teaches us about the virgin birth. So if you're ready or able, please stand and let me read this passage to us, Luke 1, 26 to 38. Luke 1, 26 to 38. <clears throat> it says, In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David, and the virgin's name was Mary. And he came to her and said, Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. And Mary said to the angel, How will this be, since I am a virgin? And the angel answered her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. And behold, your relative Elizabeth in her old age has also conceived a son, and this is the sixth month with her who was called barren, for nothing will be impossible with God. And Mary said, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. Holy Spirit, we ask now, the same Holy Spirit who overshadowed Mary and the virgin birth, we ask for you, Holy Spirit, to now open our eyes and ears to behold wonderful things in your word. In Jesus' name, amen. You can be seated. <clears throat> All right. <clears throat> Let's uh, take a look here, see what we can glean from this passage about this very important doctrine uh, called the virgin birth. We're going to begin with a very simple statement that I declare here, and that is this. The Bible indeed does affirm that Jesus was miraculously born of a virgin. This is the Scripture's teaching. The Bible affirms that Jesus was miraculously born of a virgin. Um, this is actually just one of two mentions of the virgin birth in the Scriptures. We see it here in Luke. It's also in Matthew chapter 1. Mark and John do not include a mention of the virgin birth. You might recall that as we've been going through Mark. Mark did not include it. In fact, it doesn't it's not uh, in the rest of the New Testament either. There's only two places where the virgin birth occurs, Luke and Matthew. So here's what Luke tells us. I just want to look at this in some simple detail to make sure we understand what the Scripture teaches. This is very important because if the Scriptures don't teach it, we don't need to believe it. But the Scriptures do teach the virgin birth. And so first thing I want you to see here is, is this, very simply, that Mary was a virgin. Okay? Uh, look at verse 27. This angel is sent to a virgin, it says. Angel named Gabriel, verse 26. 
um, sent from God to a city called Nazareth to a virgin. This virgin was betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph. Betrothed, kind of like modern-day engagement, but actually more serious to be betrothed would be closer to marriage than to our understanding of engagement. But in any case, we have this angel coming to what Luke describes as a virgin. But if you go down to verse 34, you'll see that Mary um, identifies herself as a virgin. Mary said to the angel, how shall this be since I am a virgin? If we look in Matthew's account in chapter 1, we get even some uh, more detailed explanation of what this is. In verse 18 of Matthew 1, Matthew tells us that Mary was with child before she came together with Joseph. Okay, you know what that's referring to. Before they had sexual relations, she was with child. So, a descriptive way of talking about a virgin. Also, in verse 25 of Matthew chapter 1, it says that Joseph knew her not until she had given birth. So, the word for know there uh, refers to sexual relation. And so, what Matthew 1.25 is telling us is that Joseph had no sexual relation with Mary until she had given birth. And so there's an implication there that they engaged in those relations after the birth of Jesus. And so this would be contrary to what our Catholic friends would teach and that uh, Jesus was perpetu- or excuse me, that Mary was perpetually a virgin. We, we don't believe that and believe the scriptures um, would deny that, that there was normal sexual relations after Jesus' birth. But the point here today is that Mary was a virgin when she was uh, impregnated with Jesus and gave birth. So that's the first thing. Mary was a virgin. So second thing that we see is that as the angel Gabriel speaks to Mary, the angel indicates that she would become pregnant. So let's look at verse 30. Verse 30, the angel comes, says to Mary, Do not be afraid, for you have found favor with God, and behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son. You will conceive in your womb. So we call this the virgin birth. It might be a little more accurate to call this the virgin conception. It's not just a birth uh, taking place through the Virgin Mary, but the conception of the child Uh, also taking place. So this is a virgin conception. But now we look at verse 31, and you see that the angel commands Mary to give this child a name. You shall call his name Jesus. Now, seems like a a simple (coughs) statement. Pardon me. Seems like a simple statement here, but there is some theological connotation here that we need to explore. Last week, remember, we learned about this uh, beloved Son, the Son of God being the second person of the Trinity, the eternally pre-existent Son of God. And I made the point that the Son had no beginning. And as we look in the Nicene Creed, we see the the Creed states that He was not made The Son of God, the eternal pre-existent Son of God was not made, had no beginning like Jehovah's Witnesses and Arians believe, as we talked about last week. But here we have this Son being born, and what the angel is telling Mary is that you need to name Him Jesus. And so here we have the beginning of the human nature 
of the Son of God named Jesus. Jesus as a human being begins in this place, even though as pre-existent eternal Son of God, He had no beginning. So we have the divine nature of our Savior that had no beginning, but the human nature of our Savior does have a beginning, and that's what the virgin birth is about. Jesus is beginning here. He is to be given this name Jesus. So we have to be careful, I think, and we say this, in fact, we just sung it just a, a moment ago, that God became man. And I think we can say that as long as we don't understand by that that God morphed into man somehow. We're not talking about God transitioning into man in the way perhaps that uh, a caterpillar morphs into a butterfly. It's not like God was God and then He became man and He's no longer God. That's not what this is teaching. God does not morph into man. Instead, what is happening here is that the Son of God is permanently adding to Himself a human nature. So I heard a radio preacher a little while ago say that Jesus was eternally human and divine. He talked about the eternal humanity and divinity of Jesus. That, that would not be a correct way to describe what is happening. Jesus is eternally divine, but He wasn't eternally human. His human nature is beginning here with His being named Jesus, born to a woman. So, the last thing here to think about as we consider the Bible's teaching on Jesus being miraculously born of a virgin is that Mary's pregnancy would be achieved by a miracle. So, when Mary receives this information in verse 34, she says, how will this be since I am a virgin? And here is the answer, verse 35. The angel says, here's what's going to happen. The Holy Spirit will come upon you, Mary, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called holy. The power of the Most High will overshadow you. That, that word for overshadow is, is an important word, a significant word. Uh, it calls to mind the very beginning of the Scriptures where we have God creating the universe. And you might remember it says the Spirit of God is hovering, hovering over the waters or overshadowing the waters. That's how creation is described. The Spirit overshadowing, hovering over the waters. But we also have a reference here to the Old Testament. Remember the people of God are freed from Egypt. They're wandering in the wilderness. And this same word here was used then to describe the cloud of glory who was hovering or overshadowing the people of God as they were in the wilderness. So you put these two together and what we have, this is what's happening here. In the virgin birth, the glory of God is breaking into history for the beginning of a new creation and the redemption of all things. There's a second creation going on here, a born-again creation that starts in the hearts of those who trust in Christ and will be finished in the new heavens and the new earth when Jesus returns again. And here is where it's beginning as the glory of God breaks into history. That's what's happening here theologically. It's very easy to misunderstand, very easy to, to be confused. When Mary and I <clears throat> went to uh, China back in 2015, we visited a city called Xining, and we saw some uh, missionaries that we know there and spent time with them. And these missionaries took us 
to a Muslim mosque there in Xining, China, a mosque that was built in the 1300s. And we went into this mosque and were immediately approached by uh, an elderly Muslim man. And his first question to us was, are you guys Christians? And uh, we said, well, yes, we are. And he just immediately began to attack the doctrines that I'm seeking to explain to you here about the incarnation. He, He immediately began to criticize our understanding of the person of Jesus. He said, Jesus could not be God, he said, because God does not eat and God does not sleep. How can you say Jesus the man was God? Now, we'll get into that more as we get to the humanity of Jesus here uh, later in the series. But the other thing that he said was, and how can you say that God had sex with Mary? And so, of course, I don't speak Chinese, so I couldn't answer that, but uh, the guy with us, the missionary, did. And so he was engaged in this conversation with him. I'm not sure what he said, but that indicates that this man had a profound misunderstanding of what we're talking about here in the virgin birth. We're not saying that God had sex with Mary. We're talking about something profoundly theological. We're talking about the glory of God breaking into the person of Jesus to save sinners like you and me. Stephen Wellam says it like this, Christ's conception is the divine intrusion of God to bring forth the last Adam, that is Jesus, the first man of the new creation to undo the work of the first Adam. That's what the virgin birth is about. And that's what the Scriptures teach. The Bible affirms that Jesus was miraculously born of a virgin. But let's consider uh, the second thing here today. Skeptics deny that Jesus was miraculously born of a virgin. Skeptics deny this. Let's be clear here and let me acknowledge that what the Scriptures are teaching us is something that is truly extraordinary. Truly extraordinary. Not something that is easy to believe. It it is a challenge to our rationality. It stretches our mind to accept and believe what the Scriptures are teaching here. But what I want you to see here is that it was the same for Mary. She was not quick to accept or receive this either. So when the angel in verses 32 and 33 speaks to Mary and says these things, look what he says. Um, He's going to be great. He's going to be called Son of the Most High. Uh, God's going to give to him the throne of his father David. Uh, He's going to reign over the house of Jacob. There's going to be no end to his kingdom. I mean, this is a very unique, extraordinary person, right? That's what the angel is saying. But basically what the angel is saying is that the Messiah that Israel has been waiting for for centuries is going to be born to you, Mary. And so you might imagine that Mary would be perhaps um, preoccupied with that, but that's not what she asks about, right? That's not what she's concerned about. What does she say Uh, immediately after this pronouncement? In verse uh, 35, she says, or verse 34, she says, how can this be? I am a virgin. She doesn't say, are you telling me that I'm the one who's going to give birth to the Messiah? No, what she's preoccupied with is, how can I give birth to anybody? I'm a virgin. Mary was not quick to believe this. Sometimes people will point to the Scriptures and say, oh, they were primitive. They weren't educated like we were. They were more predisposed to believe crazy stories like the virgin birth. That's why we have it here. Mary was not predisposed to believe in a virgin birth any more than you or I am. 
And so that's her response. How can this be? How can this happen? And so a lot of people pick up kind of a skeptical attitude about the virgin birth. And maybe you've seen these kinds of remarks made. I saw an article in the New York Times a little while ago that said that the Christian's belief in the virgin birth shows that we are less intellectual than others. There was a theological group called the Jesus Seminar who described the virgin birth as theological nonsense. Even though these were people who were professed Christian pastors and priests and leaders in the church. Brian McLaren, kind of a current writer, theologian, says the virgin birth is science-defying, and what it is really about is God's way of overthrowing patriarchy. That's what the virgin birth is about. So we've got lots of skeptics who have their own interpretations and reworkings of this teaching. One of the reasons that we have our denomination, the PCA, is because in the Presbyterian denomination, there were denials of orthodox doctrines, including the virgin birth. Presbyterians were saying this is not a miracle. It's not what we've always thought. There are natural explanations for this. It was one of the reasons why people left in 1973 to form the denomination that we currently have. So lots of skepticism about the virgin birth. What I want to do here is just kind of briefly just look at a few of the accusations, the charges that are advanced against the virgin birth. So one of the things the skeptics say, as I've already mentioned here, is that the virgin birth is not scientific. It's not scientific. I wonder, how how would you respond to that? Virgin birth is not scientific. How can we believe it? We live in an age of science. Science tells us a lot. How can we believe it? It's not scientific. My, My answer to that would be this. Very simply, science can't explain everything. Science explains a lot of things to us, and we are grateful for science. Grateful for the scientists in our congregation. We value science, but science has its limits. The nature of science is to explore what is ordinary and repeatable, but a miracle, by definition, is extraordinary and not repeatable. In other words, when a miracle happens, it is not something that science can tell us about. Miracles, by their very nature, are outside the scope beyond the reach of science. It shouldn't surprise us that the God who created the world and created the universe can do what He wants in the universe. And there are times when He interrupts the normal flow of things to do something extraordinary. We call it a miracle. Science is not designed to tell us about that kind of thing. I also like what C.S. Lewis uh, tells us about this. Um, he, He notes that When you look at the miracles in the Bible, we know that they are not arbitrary, that they're not kind of like nonsense (laughs) miracles. You know, by example, he says, we don't see houses being turned into trees. We don't see men being turned into birds. Those are not the kinds of miracles we see in the Scripture. In the case of the virgin birth, I mean, think of this. What's happening here is we have a baby being born. That happens all the time. That's a a normal thing. It happens every single day. A baby is being born. But in this case of the virgin birth, God is short-circuiting what would normally happen. And so here's how Lewis says it. For what God did once without a human father, 
He does always, even when He uses a human father as His instrument. So it, it's, it's an occurrence that is actually fairly normal, very normal and ordinary, uh, but in this case, God is doing it just a little bit differently. So it's a believable kind of miracle, if I can say that. It doesn't make it any less miraculous, but it's a more believable kind of miracle. By the way, we had a, an apologetics conference here last month, and the theme was faith and science. If you weren't able to go, we do have the audio uh, for those sessions that are available on our website now. So uh, I would encourage you to listen to those, and that will get into more detail about exactly uh, what I'm talking about here. So I would say this charge that the virgin birth is not scientific is not something that we should be concerned about. But let's consider another charge. Some people say the virgin birth is only mentioned twice in the New Testament. If the virgin birth was such a big deal, how come we don't see it mentioned over and over and repeatedly throughout Scripture? Well, let, let, let's see what the Scripture says about Scripture. And by the way, that's absolutely true. As I already mentioned, the virgin birth is only twice, Matthew and Luke. But what Paul says here in 2 Timothy is that all Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, reproof, correction, and for training in righteousness. All Scripture. And that includes the book of Luke. And there is no requirement in this verse for the number of times something needs to be mentioned in order for it to be authoritative. It doesn't have to be mentioned three times or more. One time is enough because all Scripture is breathed out by God. In fact, a couple of our favorite passages in Scripture, the story of the Good Samaritan, the prodigal son, all probably familiar with those. Do you know how many times those are mentioned in Scripture? One time each, once. For those beloved passages, we get it once. The virgin birth, we get it twice. So compared to that, uh, we should be happy at the number of times the virgin birth is mentioned. So uh, this accusation should not concern us either, that it's only mentioned twice. One more, we'll consider one more, and that is uh, that the virgin birth is based on an Old Testament mistranslation. That's what some of the skeptics say, based on an Old Testament mistranslation. What they're talking about is uh, Isaiah 7.14. And this is where we get the, the prophecy of the virgin birth. I guess we could say this is a third mention of the virgin birth in the Scriptures. Uh, in Isaiah 7, 14, Isaiah says this, Therefore the Lord Himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call His name Emmanuel. So the virgin birth in Luke is a fulfillment of what was said centuries earlier through Isaiah. And so some uh, point out in this particular verse, that that word for virgin, the Hebrew word for virgin, actually is a word that means young woman. It doesn't mean specifically a virgin. And so what people will say is, see, the gospel writers, Luke and Matthew, they have uh, mistranslated Isaiah, and we have this whole virgin birth idea that it's based on a total misunderstanding. That's what a lot of scholars will say. So how do we answer that? Well, the first thing that we can say is this. Acknowledge that it's true, that word for virgin is a word that means young woman, but here's the thing. In ancient Hebrew culture, every young woman was a virgin. So to mention that this was a virgin was not a surprise to anybody. And in fact, when that word is used throughout the rest of the Hebrew Old Testament, 
we find that in all the cases it's mentioned, it's referring to a virgin. So, you know, cultural sensibilities change over time, right? There are lots of young women in our culture who are not virgins, but that's not the way it was then. And in addition to this, if you look at the word sign, the, the idea here is that the Lord is going to give a sign. If he's going to give a sign, there must be something unusual about the sign, right? Or it wouldn't be a sign. If it were something totally ordinary, it wouldn't present itself as something that would call our attention. So if it's going to be a sign, it's got to be unusual. It's got to be extraordinary in some way. And so that would fit with the idea that what Isaiah, by the Holy Spirit, had in mind, indeed, was a virgin. And in any case, it doesn't really matter. It's a total distraction because we know, as I've already demonstrated from Matthew and Luke, that what they had in mind very clearly was that Mary was a virgin. So, <clears throat> um, friends, d don't be duped by the skepticism that we find uh, out there in scholarship in particular. You know, ask your questions, yes. I mean, there's much of the Bible that calls us to ask questions and consider what is actually going on here. But let me just encourage you not to be driven by cynicism and skepticism. There are good answers to the questions that come to us from the secular, unbelieving culture about the Scriptures. But more importantly for you personally, friends, what the Scriptures are presenting to us here is just something that is miraculous, something that shows God's power in an extraordinary way that should give us hope about what God can do in our lives. Don't be driven by skepticism, friends. Believe that God can fix your marriage. Believe that God can deliver you from your sinful temptations. Believe that God can bring back your wayward children from straying from the Lord. Believe that God can convert your friend, brother, sister, mother, father, son, or daughter. Because what the virgin birth tells us is that nothing is impossible with God. So don't be driven by skepticism. Let's be driven by hope and belief. This doesn't mean that God's going to do a miracle every time we ask Him to do it. The more common a miracle, the more ordinary it is, and it's not a miracle anymore, right? Miracles are, by their very nature, infrequent, but God can do them, and I think He wants us to believe that He can do them and to call on Him to do them. So let's not be driven by skepticism, and let's now consider uh, the last thing today, which is what will happen when the slide advances, which it is not doing. Okay. Thanks, Dan. Uh, last thing is this, Christians must believe that Jesus was miraculously born of a virgin. Let me encourage you to, to believe this. L look at Mary's response. If you look at verse 38, after hearing these words from the angel, it says, Mary said, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. That, that's Mary's way of saying I believe it. I had my question earlier. I asked my question, how can this be? Because I am a virgin. Gabriel answered, Holy Spirit is going to overshadow you. This is what's going to happen. And now Mary is saying, okay, Lord, you said it. I believe it. Let it be according to your word. Martin Luther uh, once said, really the, the miracle of the virgin birth is not that Mary conceived, but that she believed. And this is something that is a miracle. The Holy Spirit must give us faith in order to accept the miraculous testimonies that we have in the Scripture. But Mary believed, and she is setting an example for us 
to believe as well. But you might be asking this, why is it important to believe in the virgin birth? What does it really matter? I mean, isn't this something we can just kind of get uh, rid of? There's a guy named Rob Bell who was a famous pastor about 20 years ago or so, and that was kind of his argument. It's like, look, you know, if you're jumping on a mattress and you get rid of a few springs, you can still jump on the mattress. And the virgin birth is a spring we can get rid of. Not that important. Is that true? Is it important? I mean, we should remember the virgin birth is mentioned in both of the creeds, Nicene and Apostles' creeds. Every time we recite those, we affirm our belief in the virgin birth. Why is it important? Let me try to explain. What we need in a Savior, what we need in one who would come to deliver us from our sins and give us the hope of eternal life, the only way that we can be delivered and saved and redeemed is if we have a Savior who is both God and man at the same time. We need a Savior who can represent God to us, and we need a Savior through whom we can be represented to God. We need a Savior who's God and man. Now, think about the virgin birth, or think about Jesus' birth. What do you think would happen if Jesus were born to two human parents? Isn't it true that everybody would say, how in the world can he be God? He had two human parents. There's no divine intrusion there. What you have is a human Savior, but you don't have a divine Savior. You have a mere man. He's not worth being worshipped. In fact, it's blasphemy to worship him. He's just a man. But let's say somehow Jesus kind of fell out of the sky as an angel I mean, he descended from the clouds into our world. In other words, let's say he wasn't born to uh, any human parent whatsoever. Then our question would be, how can he be man? How can he understand what I go through? How can he undo what Adam did? How can he represent humankind before God? We would have a complaint. We would say he's not man. He might be God, but he's not man. But in the profound wisdom of God, what we have is a virgin birth that allows for a perfectly sufficient Savior born of a woman and conceived by the Holy Spirit, human and divine miraculously born, a human being who is also God, a fully sufficient Savior. Yes, it's important to believe in the virgin birth. And there's another reason why, and we see that in verse 35, as the angel is speaking to Mary, he declares that you will call this son holy, the son of God, that this is going to be a holy child a righteous child, a perfect child, a pure child, a child who is unblemished. This is important for us. We've got to have a Savior who is without blemish and without deceit. The problem here in all humanity is the fact that every single person has been born in sin. Every person is an inheritor of Adam's sin. Adam's sin in the garden has been transmitted by ordinary birth to every single person who has ever lived, and that includes you, and that includes me. We have all been sinners since birth. We've been infected by it, just like a germ that gets in your system. The germ of Adam's sin has infected all of our systems through ordinary generation throughout the ages. What we need is an exception to that somehow. We need one to be born 
who does not inherit Adam's sin. We need someone who is born not ordinarily, but extraordinarily. And that's what the virgin birth is teaching us about Jesus. By being conceived by the Holy Spirit, He is protected from the flow of sin, able to be a perfect sacrifice for our sins, able to stand for us as the righteous man-God in our place, the Holy Son of God. The reason this is so important to believe, friends, is because the virgin birth is telling us who Jesus is and what He is like. And our responsibility is to accept what the Scriptures teach us about who Jesus is, not to manufacture a Jesus of our own imagination. So, let me close by just answering this question. Do you have to believe in the virgin birth to be saved? I mean, let's say you're not a believer today. You're not a Christian. Maybe you're hearing this for the first time. And you're thinking, what, in order for me to be a Christian, I've got to believe this. In order for my sins to be forgiven, do I have to accept this miraculous story you're telling me about? But let me answer that question by pointing to Romans 10. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, you will be saved. It's just that simple. Do you acknowledge yourself to be a sinful person? You know that it's true that you've inherited a sin nature from Adam. You, you know that you have failed God. You know that there are things you should have done that you haven't and things that you've done that you shouldn't have done. Did you, are you aware of that? And, and have you received, do you receive, will you receive Jesus as your Savior? I would say if you're willing to do that, yes, you're, you're, just, just do that. <laughs> Don't worry about the virgin birth quite yet, okay? If it's a stumbling block, but you acknowledge yourself to be a sinner, you know you need a Savior, believe on His name and do it now. Do it today. But friends, as you grow as a Christian, as you mature, you're going to be faced with this. As you read the Bible, it's going to come up. As you grow, my encouragement to you is submit to Scripture. Don't be a skeptic. Receive the authority of God through His Word and believe that nothing is impossible with Him. So don't get to a point where your skepticism overtakes you and you reject what the Scriptures clearly teach. Believe in Jesus now and be saved. Receive the virgin birth later. But right now, you need a Savior. So believe, submit, and be saved. In Jesus' name, uh, Lord God, thank you so much for your word. Thank you, Lord, that you are... Um, so good to reveal to us things that are sometimes hard to believe, but Lord, we thank you that you have told us the way it is, and we pray just as Mary was given the capacity to say, let it be according to your word, Lord, let that be the case for us, for everything we read in your word. Let it be according to your word. Thank you, Lord, for all that you've done. Thank you for the brilliance of the gospel. Thank you for a Savior who is both human and divine for our salvation. In Jesus' name, amen. Please.